but we've been going through uh, a series called God and Kings, and and it's kind of a, a cheap knockoff of you know that Christian Bale movie, right? God, Gods and Kings, and um, but this is going through the uh, the life of three kings: um, Saul, David, and Solomon. And uh, we, Pastor Mark went through the life of Saul and his faith and his failure. Last week we went through uh, the life of David, and, and we discovered a lot about David's life. You know. Everybody knows about the David and Goliath story. Everyone knows about David uh, and and Bathsheba as far as him committing adultery. Uh, But there were certain parts of David's life that that people don't really understand sometimes. Where where he, before he became king, uh, he had to go through 20 years of, of just struggle. Right? He had to go through 20 years of loneliness, struggle, um, and fleeing for his life continually uh, before he were to actually become. So he was anointed king, had to wait 20 years before he actually became king. He was being hunted and assaulted and, and slandered. Um, and we learned about how, in, how God, if he is going to use anybody, he, he takes them from their context and puts them in a place of loneliness. We, call it, we called it the discipline of loneliness. It is, and it is an essential quality of a Christian that he or she endure loneliness to understand that you must have everything stripped away except God to truly understand God's character, right? So that there are certain struggles and tragedies that we go through in our lives where we feel very alone, and those are the times where God um, comes in the most. And we see that David's life was marked with that. Fellowship is good, Right And fellowship is needed. But if God is going to truly use you as a leader, he is going to take you and make you alone for a while. He's going to put you in the desert as he did with Jesus, as he did with Elisha, right? as he did with Moses. He's going to put you through a period of loneliness for a period of time. In David's case, it was 20 years right? Um, before he uses you to triumph. And so now we get to David's son. David's son, Solomon. And uh, for those of you that don't know this, a little bit about Solomon's background. Solomon is the second born child of David and Bathsheba, right? So uh, David, he stole one of his best friend's wives, right? And then he had that man murdered because he got her pregnant. And God said, hey, listen, you, you're not gonna, it, it's not like I'm just going to, there's no, it's not like there's gonna be no consequences for something like this. The child is actually going to die. Right? And David had to endure this. He had to endure his child dying. He and Bathsheba, after he had married her, uh, he had married her and this child had died in his arms. Now Solomon was the second born of that relationship, that marriage. We learn that David uh, had over seven to 15 wives in his lives. We, all, we often don't think about that either. Right? David had a, had a very long past of adultery and, and uh, polygamy and, and a lot of sins that would actually carry on to his sons. And we see that, that the sins of the father have a tendency to go to the sins of the sons. And so David at this point, guys, David at this point in Solomon's life, is he, he's passing away. Just to give you a little bit of context in 1 Kings chapter 13. He's, he's passing away, and he has this inability. He has many sons, right? He has over 10 sons, and, and, and he has this inability to choose a successor, right? That's what the, the first uh, three or four chapters about of uh, 1 Kings is. It's David being indecisive and him being unable to choose a successor for himself. He had privately told Bathsheba that Solomon was going to be his successor, but he actually had another son um, that had a lot of ambition. His name was Adonijah. 
He had a lot of ambition. He had a lot of initiative. And he was actually David's oldest living successor. He was his oldest living son. Right? And so he obviously thought that he was going to be king and he was going to seize it for himself because David was too old and decrepit to even uh, mention anything. He was too old and he was, he, he, was, he was starting to lose his mind. He was starting to lose his uh, control of his faculties, right? He couldn't walk. He could just lay in bed and sometimes talk to people, right? That's, that's David at this point. And we see that David's inability to pass the torch on to one of his sons, and he waited to the last minute to hold on to his power. This actually ended up being uh, very problematic for the kingdom of Israel. And, and, and for a short period of time, there was some civil war going on. Because Adonijah, he had actually recruited all of David's enemies, right? To kind of overthrow the throne, so to speak. And now David finally, he, he pulls some priests together. He throws some elders of the city together. And he says, listen, Solomon is to be my successor. Solomon is to be my successor. And after all the craziness is over, after all the fighting, after all the arguing, Solomon goes to a high place to worship God. He worships God and he falls asleep there. And that's where we get to 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 5. So if you'll read along with me. It says this, At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. So Solomon is recalling at this point, he's saying, listen, God, you have, you have been very faithful to my father, David. You've been very faithful to him. And now he says in verse 7, now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father, David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or to how to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So now, now, now God comes to Solomon here. And, and he, he appears to Solomon in a dream, right? So, so this isn't this actual uh, back and forth between David and God, right? I mean, Solomon and God. This isn't an actual back and forth that is happening in real time. This is all happening in a dream. And, and, and God comes to Solomon and he says, listen, just ask us anything. Ask of anything, what shall I give you, right? And now this isn't some kind of blank check from God, right? I want you to understand, that's not the way God operates. God doesn't just say, hey, listen, whatever you ask, it's yours, right? Whatever you ask, riches, gold, awesome things, right? Just ask and I'll give it to you, right? That's not the way God operates. Solomon has been called to something that is far greater than he can handle. And so God has come to test Solomon's heart, right? We've already made the mistake. Man has already made the mistake with Saul, right? Man already made the mistake with Saul and just putting someone who looked like he was good for the job there, right? Someone who may look the most qualified sometimes has the most wretched of hearts, right? And God understands that. So when God asked Solomon, listen, anything you want, 
What shall I ask of you? It's less of a blank check and more of a, what does your heart desire? What does your heart desire? One's desires are truly revealed when they are given the ability to have whatever they want. Think about that. Your, the, the, the desires of your heart, they really don't mean much when you have no means to even accumulate things, right? The wickedness of your heart doesn't mean as much for someone who's poor as it does for someone who's rich, does it? For someone who has means to exercise the wickedness of their hearts, it, you know, it, it, it's much more real, right? It's a great test of one's heart when they actually get to have what they want. I mean, think of all the sins you would have committed if you actually had the opportunity, right? I mean, we, we can brag all the time, right? We could brag all the time, well, I haven't done this, I haven't done this, I haven't done this. Well, it's like, come on, you, <laughs> you haven't gotten that opportunity, right? I say that to my youth guys a lot. Well, I haven't, you know, done this with girls. I'm like, bro, come on, <laughs> right? <laughs> have you had the opportunity? No, right? It's the same thing, you know, when we have the opportunity to do things that often exposes wrong things in our hearts, right? And so when God comes to Solomon, he says, listen, ask, what shall I give you? What do you want? And it seems crazy that God would just say this, huh? Right? It seems crazy that God would just come up to Solomon and say, whatever you want, man. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Right? It, it seems absurd to me, but doesn't he ask this of us all the time? Not necessarily saying, hey, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want, but, but him asking, what do you want? What do you desire? We see this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. He says this, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. He says in John 15, verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. In 1 John 5, 14, it says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So, so guys, you know, the, the, this kind of statement that God gives Solomon, it's not exclusive to Solomon. This kind of statement is asked of us all the time. Hey, hey, listen, if you're pursuing God and you know his will, anything you ask of, it will be yours. Now, that's not to say that uh, anything I desire and I just, God is like my sugar daddy, right? And he just gives me whatever, right? That's, that's not the concept that we're exercising here. It is that if you are abiding in the Lord and you are seeking his heart and you are becoming one with his heart through his word and through prayer and you are close to him, that means that what God desires is what you desire, and God always gets what he wants. And when we want the same thing as God and we pray for it, don't we also always get what we want? That's the concept here. That's why Solomon, when he's about to implore of the Lord saying, listen, just give me a discerning and understanding heart. God is like, yes. If we ask something that is according to God's will, if we, if we are asking for things that are glorifying to him and that he has promised us already in his word, it will be fulfilled in God's timing and in his ways. And we're not going to be frustrated at the timing. We're not going to be frustrated at the ways because we're one with God's heart anyways. What God asks Solomon is no more unusual than what God asks of Christians today. What does your heart desire? Ask me. Know who I am enough 
to ask of what I have. I mean, you have friends that have connections, right? If you have a friend who knows a guy who, you know, is really good at working with cars, right? Who do you go to when your car breaks down, right? When I know, when I know the resources that my friends have, I can call upon them for those resources, right? The more I understand of God, the more I can call upon him in certain circumstances, the more I understand of God, that's why, guys, that's why it's important to read your Bible. It's not some, you know, weird, religious, awkward text that we read just because church tells us to. That's not it. It is we are, we are coming in contact with the character of God so that we would know of what to ask of him and how to function. Right? Because there's so many promises he has made available to us that, that we, we are unaware of. Right? So we shake our fists at God. Why does this happen? Why does this happen? He's like, listen, look at my words. See what I've promised. You you should know my character enough by now to not be surprised by this stuff, right? When Solomon is asked the question, uh, he, he says, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. I'll say it again. Give, you, uh, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. That is, that is Solomon's one request, right? So when he's given this blank check, right? When he's given this, hey, ask whatever you want. Solomon says, give me an understanding heart. And the word understanding here actually means a listening heart. So not a heart that just knows stuff, a heart that is listening, so a heart that doesn't just automatically know everything, but a heart that is tuned in to receive things. Listen, a listening heart is much better than knowing everything. An automatic knowledge of, of whatever you desire is, is far less valuable than a heart that is able to take in information, to understand what people are going through, to understand the word of God, right? A heart that receives is far better than a mind that already has, right? That's hard in our society of quick information. And all we have to do is type something in on Google, right? Not just a good conscience, but a heart that is guided by the voice of God. That's what Solomon asks for. Give me an understanding heart. And God was very pleased by this. We see in verse 10, it says this. Yeah. Chapter three, sorry. Chapter three, not 13. Sorry, guys. I totally threw you guys off. Chapter three, stupid notes, right? Chapter three, verse 10. You guys all there now? Yeah. (laughs) All right, yeah. (laughs) At least I said first Kings, right? Like, all right. First Chronicles, chapter three. Uh, It says this in verse 10 of first Kings, chapter three. The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for long life for yourself, nor asked riches for yourself, nor have asked a life, a long life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given to you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among all the kings all your days. So, 
Listen to this. If you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God was incredibly, incredibly pleased to hear Solomon's request. And what, an, and what is amazing to me is that God actually exceeds what Solomon asked for. Uh, this, this passage is very close to me because I, I, I remember, you know, for those of you that know my testimony, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of young, right? Um, I'm, I'm really young. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm super young, and I, believe it or not, I started this when I was even younger than I am now, if that's even possible, right? I was about in diapers, right? Um, when I and, and, and I just remember being super young and, and given a really big responsibility early on. And I remember this passage actually really ministering to my heart, right? Because, because Solomon even says, he says, listen, he, he says, and your servant is in the midst of your, he says this, sorry. He says, but I am a little child and I do not know how to go out or come in, right? He says, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a baby, I'm a little child. I have no idea what I'm doing. Please just help me to understand. Just give me wisdom. That's all I want. And, it, it, and God was so pleased by this because it was out of such a place of humility and self-awareness. Where Solomon didn't say, oh, yeah, I'm the youngest this, youngest that, right? He said, no, I'm so young. I have no idea what I'm doing. Lord, if you don't give me an understanding heart, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. Solomon's vulnerability right now, at this point in time, is probably the best moment of his life. I'm telling you, he, he, he has climaxed early, right? Because what we see in his life is a downward spiral after this, where he uses his knowledge and wisdom for evil and not for good. But, but what we see is a downward spiral after this. Right now, he is at the height of, of, of connection with God. And notice, it is at the place where he is the least famous, the least rich he's ever been, the most humble he's ever been, and the youngest he's ever been. Notice how, how, how this, this incredible moment with God is at a place where he was not all that important. Status and riches come later. And so does a whole bunch of sins for Solomon. But what, what I love about God is that, that he looks at this humble heart and he actually exceeds what Solomon asked for. He says, I've given you a wise and understanding heart. So he gives him what he desires so that there's not been anyone like you before, nor shall anyone arise after you. And I've also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you. So not only am I going to give you wisdom, Solomon, but I'm also going to give you resources and accolade so that you might use, put your wisdom to good use, right? So, so not only did God supply the gifting, but he also supplied the resources to exercise that gifting, right? So don't look at riches as just like God just throwing gold at Solomon. What, what ended up happening is that God gave Solomon a good name so that he could get resources from other nations, and he gave him riches so that he was able to build the temple of Jerusalem. So, so God supplied the gifting that was so humbly asked for by Solomon, and then he supplied the resources afterwards, And the same is true with us today. 
In Ephesians 3.20, he says this, now, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all the generations forever and ever. Amen. Now in both of these cases, I, I, I want us to examine this closely. In both of these cases of Christ's blessing being above and beyond what we have ever asked, there is a condition, right? So we see in Solomon's case, in Solomon's case, it says right here, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And so, and so, so God says, hey, not only am I going to give you wisdom and understanding and all these awesome things, but I'm also going to give you a bonus, right? I'm also going to give you something you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you a reputation. I'm going to give you riches. However, there is a condition by which, by, by which you're going to be contracted into this gift that I'm giving you. He says, so if you walk in my ways and keep my commandments as your father David walked, I will lengthen your days. And then in Ephesians 3.21, when it says he will give you uh, above and beyond whatever you can ask or imagine, it says to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever. So, so God is faithful and abounding in blessings far greater than we could ever dream up for ourselves, right? So God, God is far more gracious than we could ever imagine, right? We, we have these prayers and we have these dreams that we want God to do for us, right? And, and what's interesting is that God is actually out to exceed those expectations you have, right? He, he is out to exceed that. He is out to do far above and beyond what you could even ask for and what you could even fathom in your head. But that's just it. Since God alone is the one who pours forth great things, it is God alone who gets to decide how those blessings are allocated. Here's what I mean. Since God is the one that supplies the gifting, since God is the one that supplies the resources, since God is the one who supplies the riches, the reputation, the family, the job, since he is the one who has supplied these answered prayers, since he is the one who has supplied these blessings, he also gets to be the one who decides how that gifting, how that blessing is to be used. So he doesn't just give us a gift and say, you know what, just do whatever you want with it. Do it for yourself, do it for your family. No, he says, listen, there is a condition by which I have given you these things. Right? The verse that says, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. Right? For those of you that have, may have grown up in a more a comfortable household, right? To whom much is given, much is required, isn't it? Right? God doesn't just say, well, I like you better than this person, so obviously I gave you more, right? God doesn't do that. He says, listen, I bless you with this certain amount, this certain portion, and with that portion, I expect more from you, right? God's condition for a long and healthy life was that Solomon would seek God as his father David did. And David did so with a pure and contrite heart. And, and we, we learned last week, right? David stumbled. David sinned. I would say that David's sins, a lot of them were far more hideous than Saul's sins. Some of David's dirtiness was far, far worse than anything Saul ever did. 
However, there was a purity to David's heart. There was this repentance and there's this brokenness that David displayed as he was running towards God and just tripping and falling on his face as kids do, right? You know, you ever see a kid whose head is just twice as big as his body, right? Right, and just like, you know, running around and then all of a sudden, boom, face first, right? I picture that being like David, just this pure and innocent little child who just keeps falling and hitting his face. But there's purity in it. He's running to his daddy, right? That was David's heart. And, 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 what, and, and what David never had, which was a good beginning, right? Some riches to start off with, a good father to bring him up. What, what David lacked, Solomon has. And so, what, so essentially what God is saying here, he's like, listen, you better pursue me as much or if, or if more if possible than your father David did. I have given you more. I've given you a larger portion and I expect more out of you. And Solomon would start out very, very well. Solomon would start off very well. He actually would go on to build the temple of Jerusalem. Uh, That's where the dwelling place of God and the center of worship for God's people would be, right? The the, the big temple where all the sacrifices and all the rituals were done, where, where people would go and it was the center of the world as far as worshiping God was concerned. That would be built and designed by Solomon, right? It's something that David had started and, and God's like, David, you've killed way too many people to build my temple, right? You've, you have way too much blood on your hands. I'm going to give that to your son Solomon, right? And Solomon got to build the temple. However, however, Solomon in his, his mind that had a mind for economics, finances, he, he's, he's looking at all this and he's, he's trying to decide what's cost effective, right? He stops thinking about what's honoring to God while building the temple and he starts thinking about what's cost effective. He starts to employ slaves, Canaanite slaves, to build God's temple. You guys imagine how that made God feel? Not only slaves, but Canaanite slaves. The people that the, the people of God were not supposed to deal with, right? Right? The people who sacrificed children, right? He took Canaanite slaves and had them build the temple, the center of worship for God. That would begin. That was literally the catalyst of the downward spiral that is Solomon's life. The minute he stopped thinking in a holy way and he started thinking in a fiscal way, right? The two can intertwine, can't they? Absolutely. God is all about stewarding money well. But the second, the second Solomon decided, you know what? This might be a little more efficient rather than this is what the character of God would decide. That's where, he, that's where he lost his grip. He lost it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, written by Solomon, I, I, I highly suggest all of you read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the most depressing book in the Bible. I would say even more depressing than Job. First chapter star, starts off with, bam, life is meaningless. Right? Just straight up. You know, Solomon, Solomon, towards the end of his life, after all the things Solomon had done, in his life, he, he's writing to people and he's like, guys, it's all vanity. Doesn't, doesn't matter. Anything you do, doesn't matter. Like, oh, your family, that's cute. Doesn't matter, right? <laughs> you know, like, oh, you like that? Cool. Yeah, it doesn't matter, 
right? Oh, wisdom, nice. Yeah, doesn't matter, you know? He would say it about everything. Everything is vanity, he would say, and grasping for the wind, right? This was Solomon's life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 4, he says this. Solomon says this, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. So, so he didn't have a garden. He had a forest. He made a forest. Any of you make a forest? Like, yeah, you have a nice spice garden in your backyard. Solomon made a forest, Right? He made a forest. He said, I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all who precede me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Right? It says this also. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I'm finally better than my dad, David. Right? He's saying I've preceded all who have been before me in Jerusalem, but you know who he really means. I'm better than my dad. Everyone's still talking about King David. I'm here. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Some of you are still operating in this context of you want to be better than your father or your mother. Some of you are still operating in this context of you want to be better than this person you're jealous of. That is so clear in Solomon's life, it's not even funny. My wisdom also stood by me, saying, and I kept my wits about me the whole time. I wasn't this deranged lunatic accumulating wealth. I did it very methodically. He says, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward from my labor. So he's saying, I worked hard for this. I didn't have this handed to me. I'm not some spoiled little prince like everyone thinks I am. He said, I worked hard for my success. And in verse 11, he says this. Thus, I considered all my activities, which my hands had done and the labor, which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. He lists all of these accolades, guys. Guys, historically, not just biblically, but historically, Solomon was the leading mind in music and economics and botany and gardening and finances and in architecture. Solomon was the leading mind. He wrote a lot of books. He was visited by many kings who had come and asked him for his wisdom. Solomon was very well known for things other than his devotion to God. He, he was very well known in his music, especially economics, all of these things. And everyone knew him and respected him. Everyone knew him and respected him. He became incredibly successful. He was good at what he did. He was a good king. He was good at what he did, right? He accumulated much for himself. Outwardly, you have only seen prosperity and affluence in Solomon's life. 
He was a good king. He was wise, right? He was, kind of, he was operating in a, a time of peace, right? There was no wars happening at this moment in time, right? He was operating, and, and outwardly, it looks like he's doing super, super well, right? Everyone wanted to be like Solomon. Everyone wanted what Solomon had. Solomon, towards the end of his life, when you read Ecclesiastes, when you really dive into the book of Ecclesiastes, you see something very, very clear in Solomon's life. It was that success was his savior, not God. Leading a successful life was much more important to him than his savior, God. He let the things he did be more impactful and more important than the person he was. Solomon, in his pursuit of success and power, accumulated so much wealth and so much respect, so much knowledge, libraries, gardens, made his own forest. But in the midst of all of that, guys, you guys know this, right? A lot of you guys know this. He accumulated 700 wives. 700 wives and 300 concubines. <laughs> yeah. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now, everyone likes to say this. Like, I've heard every single pastor and every commentary say this. Well, he must not have been very smart if he had 700 wives, you know? Like, who wants 700 wives, right? All the talking. How can you keep track of all it, right? Like, and everyone likes to joke about that, right? But when I look at this, that's not it actually. He accumulated 700 wives from different tribes, from diff- different nations, from different kingdoms, and it was a mean means by making treaties and peace between nations. Right? He would marry king's daughters, right? He would marry princesses. He would marry foreign, uh, you know, diplomatic. It, it was all diplomatic, guys. Now, the 300 concubines, right? That's him, right? That's, that's, that's his deal, right? That's, that's some sick stuff, right, that he was into, right? 300 concubines. But the 700 wives was about power. It was about accumulating political power. 300 concubines, 700 wives, it was all about power and sex. That was it. Power and sex. That's what it was for Solomon. That's what it became. These 700 wives, 700 relationships with other rulers, important figures in Jerusalem, in different nations. Right? That's pretty smart of Solomon, actually. Everyone says, oh, that's super dumb, 700 wives, right? He was being smart. He was being tactical. A lot of foreign wives means a lot of foreign connections. A lot of trade, right? A lot of armies, if he were to need it. A lot of workers and laborers for his different architectural exploits. He was making connections. But in the midst of this, guys, in those 700 wives from different nations, also came 700, wa- 700 different worldviews, 700 different religions, 700 different gods. And Solomon, in this time, he went through this downward spiral of, it, it, he would, in order to get ahead, he would drift farther away from God. Because as he accumulated these 700 wives, he would start to worship their gods. He would start to pay homage to their gods. He would start to make sacrifices to their gods. He started to worship idols in the midst of this. In order to keep face, in order to keep the relationships. 
He would start, he would start making connections with other people's gods. Solomon's means by which he got ahead was the same way, the same mode by which he drifted from God. Be very careful about your passions in life. Check yourself to make sure that they glorify your father. And, and, and I don't mean you can like throw in like, oh yeah, like, you know, in some way, like this helps, you know, the kingdom of God, whatever. I, I'm saying check your passions. Check your passions. Is your God getting ahead? Right? Is he getting more successful? Is he getting more well-known? Is he getting a higher education? Is that your God? Because the same way we acquire success or our dreams could be the same way we drift further and further from God if we are not careful. I'm not here to judge your life, right? That is between you and the Lord. I'm not making any assumptions either. I'm not trying to say anything to any one of you. I'm saying I have to continually check, all right, what are my ambitions and how do they align up with the kingdom of God? And it's not that I have to find some way to find the kingdom of God meeting my ambitions, right? That's not it. It's do my ambitions line up with the kingdom of God, right? And in 1 Kings... Chapter 11, I think it's chapter 11, I don't know. Verse 9, it says this. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded, right? And so, so God came to Solomon several times. Several times, God is coming to Solomon saying, listen, all of these connections you're getting, all this success, it is, it is drifting you further away from me. You're giving yourself to other gods just so you can accumulate more money and connections and power. Come back to me. God gave so many chances for Solomon to just come back to him. And Solomon, though, he continually let his professional life eclipse his faith with God. Instead of God influencing his job, he chose his job over God. Your faithfulness to the Lord ought to trickle in to some flourishing things in your professional life. Your professional life should not eclipse what God has for your life. Listen, you might be really good at what you do whether you're a student in here, whether you own your own business, right? Whether you're an employee at a job you love or an employee at a job that you may not love but you think you're good at at least. You may be good at what you do. And that's good to be good at what you do. Pastor Mark will preach all the time that, that work is holy. Work is a good institution. Your job and what you do is incredibly important. And it is a means by which you glorify the Lord in just working and doing something excellently. That is totally glorifying to the Lord. Ignorance and laziness lead to a bad life. That's, that's period. So that's why Paul says if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat, right? However, however, 
Do not let your professional knowledge eclipse your knowledge of God's word. Do not let your professional ambitions ever get in the way of sometimes God wanting you to pull back a little bit and sacrifice a little bit. Because do you know what? One will preserve your salary, but the other will preserve your soul. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Are the decisions you make purely out of finances? Right? Is money the driving force behind the professional decisions you make? Behind the schooling decisions that you make? Or do you have a legitimate ambition to pursue God and to have his name be glorified in whatever you do? Now that could be done if you're you know, an assistant banker. It could be done if you're a computer programmer. It could be done at an office job. It can be done at a desk in a school. It could be done anywhere. You can glorify the Lord by the good work that you do as long as you're working for a company that isn't unethical. However, however, your job, guys, your school, it may go, right? Jobs come and go. Schooling stops at one point, hopefully for some of you, right? But the one thing that will be preserved for all of eternity is your knowledge of the Lord and his character. And if you're choosing your professional life or your educational life, if you're pursuing these things instead of pursuing God, what you'll get is a successful and affluent life, but your soul will be damaged and far from the Lord. If you pursue the Lord first, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all else will be added onto you. Do you know what that means? It means you pursue the knowledge and the honoring of the Lord first and he will make your professional life good. He will make your educational life worthwhile. He will make these things and he will bless these things. That is a promise that he has. If you seek me first, all else will be added onto you. Don't worry about it. It's so easy, guys, to let our ambitions just get in the way of the relationship with Jesus, the one who fashioned us, the one who is not, he cares about you more than you care about yourself. Do you understand that? We have this, we have this thing, guys, and, and I'm learning this, you know. Uh, Dane was there when I came to this revelation, right? Like that, that I, I, I've had this this attitude, I've had this thought in me that I think God's a taker. I I think he takes things, right? I have this whole mentality in my head of God wants to take things from me because that's what God does. He takes things because he's like, you got to be humble. Ah, right. I have this, I have this ingrained thing in me where I think that God only wants to take from me. And so if I do want this job or I do want this bonus and salary, or I do want this, if I, if I do want something, I'm afraid to want things, honestly, because I think God will take it from me the minute I want it, right? Like he, he's just some like really, really attached like boyfriend or girlfriend, right? That it's like, you can't look at anything else but me, right? And, and, and I, I, I have this air about me, I have this attitude about me where I think God wants to take things from me. But man, God doesn't want to take anything from you. He simply says, surrender it and watch how better I am at doing your job. 
surrender this thing to me and watch that I am just so much better at handling this than you are. You, hey, you have this legitimate desire, right? Give it to me. I will mold it and shape it and put extra things onto it and I'll give it back to you and it'll be better than when you gave it to me. God's not a taker, he's a giver. And that's, and that's probably some of your reluctance with tithing, right? God just wants to, he's just a taker, right? Like, don't really, no, God's like, give it to me and watch what I do with it. Like, I, I want your heart. I don't need your money. I want your heart. So, so sacrifice just this 10% to me and watch what I do. It's not about me needing to take anything from you. It's about me wanting your heart and watching me do awesome things with it. Solomon applied his intellect to architecture, to music, to literature, to botany, to politics. But he neglected the word of God in his life. And that is clear. It was later in life he would write Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. It was much later in his life. Both books are so full of wisdom, guys. Because Solomon lived a long life of doing the exact opposite of what he encourages us to do in Proverbs. He had a long life of doing the exact opposite of the things he tells us, right? Very often, Solomon actually encourages, hey, stay away from promiscuous women, right? Like us guys, like he, he's like, hey, dudes, like stay away from that, right? And it's like, well, who are you to talk Solomon? Solomon's like, I'm at the end of my life and I did it 300 times, right? Listen to me. Listen to me. Pursue the word of God. He says that, he said, fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He says that towards the end of his life, not the beginning, because he learned. He learned that I spent an entire, entire life of not fearing God one bit. Now towards the end of my life, I'm truly discovering what wisdom really is. Because of Solomon's life of sex and drugs and chasing success, God would eventually cut away Solomon's kingdom from his heir. And at the end of his life, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and I'll close here. He says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is the last little portion of wisdom that Solomon has to offer at the very end of his life. He's about to die. He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Now, I I just promise you at this point, you're younger than Solomon is, right? So no matter what age, you're like, oh, that's not me. Yes, it is. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. He says, while you have the energy now, remember your creator. Remember what he's asked you to do. Before you're like me and I finally realized and I finally remembered my creator, but I'm bedridden and unable to do anything for him. So don't don't let it get away from you like it did me. In verse 11 of chapter 12, he says this. He says, The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They're given by one shepherd, But beyond this, my son, be warned. 
The writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Solomon, at the very end of his life, he said, do you know what? Everything I have accumulated, all of my professional success, all of the architecture I've built, the business I've created, the, 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 the herds and the flocks that I've accumulated, all my children even, at the end of the day, it is all going to be gone and wiped out. My one advice to you is not to build this for yourself or to start this for yourself. My advice isn't to educate yourself in this, though it is good. It is not to read this book, though it is nice. I've accumulated all the wisdom in the world, and I'll tell you the wisest thing I can give you at the very end of my life is fear God and keep his commandments. Even among the wisest man to ever live, which Solomon was, he was called the wisest man who ever lived. Even among the wisest man that has ever lived and ever will live, There was this belief that intimacy with God can be replaced with glory, knowledge, or success. Listen, Solomon is living proof that you can be doing all the right things and you can be living in your calling. You can be, you know, Solomon was supposed to be king and he did his job well. But he's living proof that you could be doing your job well, but your soul can be dying. And it cannot even matter at the end. Solomon didn't regret at the end of his life. He didn't say, I should have built more things. I should have accumulated more. I should have learned more. I should have taught more. I should have volunteered more. He doesn't say any of that. He he says, I wish I would have feared God. Wisest man to ever live built so many things last piece of advice he gives us just listen to him just listen to him I spent so much time ignoring him I spent so much time accumulating all this stuff and at the end of the day it doesn't even matter know him fear him and that's I mean that's that's the greatest pastoral advice I can give you right greatest pastoral advice I could ever give anybody, and I'll preach this to, to the day I die, is to understand two things. is that God is a shepherd and you are a sheep. And that the sheep's success is contingent on his proximity to the shepherd. It doesn't matter how good the sheep is at finding grass. It doesn't matter how high the sheep can skip or whether he's more fluffy and furry than all the others. At the end of the day, the wolves will consume the sheep unless he's close to the shepherd. Solomon knew that. He said, I I spent way too much of my life trying to find my own pastures, trying to do my own thing. And I recognize fully, guys, in this room that some of you will live much, much longer and live a lot more painful lives until you come to what Solomon has realized. 
but it's my job as a pastor. It is my call in Ezekiel as a watchman on the tower to warn you, to say, pursue God now. Don't wait. Don't wait till you're done with this education or until you've gotten this job or you've married this person. Don't, don't, don't wait for anything. Solomon, you know, I'll just build the temple first or I'll just do this first. I'll just get this connect, And eventually you'll find yourself like Solomon had lived a life full of success. But the success now, as he says, he says this, I've accumulated so much. Now it's just going to go to someone stupid, right? That inherits it. He even said that. He's like, someone foolish is just going to inherit all the work I did. So here's my warning as a pastor, my loving, truly loving warning to you. Pursue God now. Now. Remember God now. Seek intimacy with him now. Do not wait for anything. Your soul will be better off for it. And so we're going to worship and we're going to take communion. And communion, guys, is simply this, that um, Pastor Mark and I, we keep communion here every night. It's, it's not a... It, it, it's a call to scripture. You know, every time you meet, take communion. But it, it's mostly... It's mostly just so that I can't go one sermon without talking about Jesus, right? Be wary, people that don't talk about Jesus. It's just a representation here that, that Jesus said, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. I've not come to take from you, I've come to give to you. And when he gave his life, right? When he, when he laid down his life, when he laid down his comfortability, when he as it says in Philippians, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself towards the point of death. When, when we take the bread, it's a reminder that, that Christ gave his body, he gave his life, he sacrificed his comfortability, he sacrificed all of these things so that we might be a part of a greater body, so that we might be a part of the body of Christ, so that we might live eternally together as one body, but then also reunited with God later on. And and, and so his body, his body that was broken and endured all the sin of humanity that, that acted as a bridge for us between us and God. We have intimacy with him now because of what Christ has done on the cross. That's why we take the bread. It's not some weird ritual that we do. It's to remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed his covenant to us. Him saying, my my blood is going to be shed. It's sufficient. God will shed my blood so he doesn't have to shed yours. I will suffer so that you don't have to suffer. My righteousness, I, I will take your wickedness, I will wear your wickedness on the cross, and in so doing, I will take off my righteousness and I will put it on you. That's propitiation. It's, it's the blood of Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ wrapping around us. So Solomon talks about, I've just lived such a meaningless life. Christ says, partake in communion. Embrace the cross. Die to yourself that I might live in you. So Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. So let's do tonight what Solomon didn't do till the end of his life. Let's die to ourselves, our ambitions, our desires, so that Christ might live in us and do more abundant things than we could ever imagine. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray that uh, 
tonight's worship would be sweet to you. God, that we would worship you with a pure heart as David did before your throne. I just I, I think about the echoing songs of David in the cave while he's suffering, Lord. Saying, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift my hands in your name. I pray that that tonight the songs that we sing, they might be echoes from the cave of our own loneliness, Lord. We might have entrenched ourselves with ambition and success and power and vice, thinking that it would get us somewhere, but we've realized it gets us nowhere. I pray that tonight our cries to you, our worship towards you, Lord, that that would be the most worthwhile thing we've done all day. And that every day we'd be praising you in some way, giving you honor in some way. By doing so, our lives find worth and they find purpose. So that when we go to our jobs, we can do so glorifying you. When we go to our families, we can meet them glorifying you. When we father our sons and our daughters, when we mother our sons and our daughters, when we go to our relationships, our husband, our wives, our boyfriends, our girlfriends, may we, may we be glorifying and worshiping you in all of it. Not worshiping the created things, but the creator himself. I pray that that would be the cry of our hearts tonight and that tonight would just simply be a beginning to a week of worshiping you in different ways. May this time be holy to you, may it be set apart for you. And I pray that we come with arms wide open, ready to receive the blessings you have to offer. That we'd use those blessings and those giftings to glorify your name. We love you, Lord, and we recognize we only love you because you have loved us first. So we pray these things knowing that you'll help us. In Jesus' name, amen.